he couldn't, he can't really be, you know, divine and also have a body. That's beneath God. So there are some folks, like you say, who sort of were on the the side of Jesus is. Uh, looks human but is really sort of divine uh, and the others who are like almost the opposite who are like Jesus isn't quite a God God you know maybe like in quote marks with an asterisk or like you know God-esque or like diet God zero calories that kind of thing um, and Jesus is fully human that way and then there's a hodgepodge of other places that are kind of in between right like what does it mean that he's the son of God because we don't right. want to say that there's multiple gods right yeah. and that, yeah, that opens another can of worms once you're deciding or we're going to say he's more than just a regular human he's more than just an interesting root Jewish rabbi he is also somehow divine instantly in a Greek and Roman world where they had a whole pantheon of gods and semi-demi-gods, you could have, oh, he's like Hercules who's got a human mother and a divine father. Is that what we're talking about? And the church is like, I don't think that's what we're talking about. And yet, they had to wrestle with, well, we got the story where we got a human mother. <laughs> and he just saying God's going to be, well, wait a second. So at some point, the poetry wasn't clear enough. Maybe, maybe that's the, 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 the best way I can think of to put it. That it's, it's not that what John says in his gospel is insufficient or inadequate, but it's poetry. And at some point, at least as someone who now has kids who ask questions beyond the parent level to you know, answer about them, like they keep poking. Well, hold on, what does that mean? So like in our house, we just had to come through this conversation. Um, on December 6th, um, our children put out shoes for St. Nicholas because that's what they did in kindergarten. And so they assumed the same thing would happen there. And so um, my children asked me, well, how will St. Nicholas come? Because he doesn't come by chimney, right? That's Santa Claus. And, like, they're still in nice. are they Are they one and the same being? Like, we're having conversations very much like the Nicene Creed about St. Nicholas and Santa Claus at our house. And does Santa just magically come in and also St. Nicholas use magic? Because I heard he was a bishop, and I'm not sure the bishops are like, magic. Like, I'm getting these kind of questions. And I want to leave it at, just put your shoes out, there'll be candy in the morning, kid. <laughs> Um, and they're, they keep asking. So the early would, 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 uh, would St. Nicholas, as the bishop, have to ask Bishop Lozano if he can come into his territory and, like, do ministry? I'm pretty sure that's how, yeah, yeah, you have to ask if you're allowed to operate in somebody else's territory. Right, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... I bet that would be a funny email to receive. <laughs> But so, like, the early church was asking a similar kind of question. Like, it's, okay, John, I get it. The word became flesh, the word was with God, the word was, was God, but... Does that mean that God got hungry? Because Jesus got hungry. Does that mean God gets tired? And it sort of it forced people to decide what crazy things are they going to say about God. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the, that's the other thing is that like this required a complete rethinking about what people understood the word God to mean. Because from a lot of human history, and I think certainly in um, the, uh, a certain strand of, of Judaism. Uh, and, and certainly in the ancient Greek and Roman thinking, gods are the thing that makes you God is your almightiness, and that you're, it's your powerfulness that you don't need to sleep or eat or rest or whatever, and that you're not susceptible to all that. And if now Christians were saying, yeah, God doesn't need all that, oh, but then also God got hungry and took naps and slept on boats and wept when his friend Lazarus died. And, and if we're then saying Jesus is God, does that mean heaven is empty and that for a certain number of years nobody's minding the store up in heaven? And so these are the kind of questions the church had to wrestle with. But yet, heaven couldn't be empty <laughs> because Jesus prayed to Exactly. God. So, so, so then that also opens up, I think, another can of worms of Jesus and God interacting. Mm-hmm. And then the 
added layer then also of Jesus saying he was going to send another advocate, right. the Holy Spirit, which, who's the Holy Spirit? Right, like, right, right. That's and, and, so weird. And if you're going to say that Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God, well, were they with God from the beginning? Right. Before creation? Like, you have this, are they eternal like God, or they were created... By God. Did did God just grant God's status to a later being? Yeah. Or is this like earthworms where you cut one in half and then both halves just kind of start operating independently of each other? So, again, like, I want to give a certain amount of credit to the early church. Both, I'm glad they eventually came to some kind of clarity, but also, before we just like rail against the people who are now easily branded heretics. These are fair questions to ask, mm-hmm. and if you don't already have a hymnal or a creed book telling you here's the answer, of course you're going to ask questions, because anything you say about a God who somehow is fully present in a human life, especially one that then dies executed by the state in a particularly shameful way, that's going to challenge your notion of what God means, mm-hmm. as well as what it means to be human, too. Right. And so it makes sense that they had to ask questions like, wait a second, if you're saying Jesus is God, does that mean God goes to the bathroom and has diapers? Or, you know, on the other hand, if you're saying that Jesus is uh, fully human, you know, how did he know things that only God... Like, it, the, the Gospels themselves present challenges, the other New Testament writings present challenges, and all of this presents challenges to how do we end up saying there's only one God, and also Jesus is God, and also Jesus is somehow separable from God, um, and also Jesus is fully human. And in the end, the church was sort of corralled together. The leaders in the early church were sort of corralled by the Emperor Constantine. He sort of did the lock them in a room until they could come up with an answer and then let them out when they had an answer. Um, and, and I think it's important to quickly note yeah. that the only difference between heresy and orthodoxy is the winner gets to decide. And, yeah, and the sense. winner gets to be the orthodox faith. Right. Now, in fairness, too, in these early centuries... Christianity, it's not like it was a particularly glamorous thing to be a Christian. So, like, it's not like this was tied to a lot of power, necessarily. Eventually, obviously, the church wields a huge, immense amount of power, and we could say one of the downfalls or dangers of Christianity is when uh, we marry orthodoxy and the need to be right with who gets power and who can kill other people, who controls treasures and powers and builds palaces and things like that. In the early centuries, um, this was more about what do we actually think we believe, and it I, I think it's overly cynical to assume everything was a power grab. But yeah, the, the people who came out as the winners in the end of the debate get to say the other people were wrong. When going into the room, it was like, well, I don't know how this is going to come out. In a way, almost like, you know, before the horse race starts, they're all contenders, and at the end there's one winner and a whole bunch of losers, but they all, you know, they, you don't know how it's going to turn out until you get there. Um, and to be fair also to those groups that now are regarded as heresies, they all had Bible verses on their side, too. This wasn't just, well, it's one side has the Bible and the other people are just making things up. They all had stacks of Bible verses. Well, I would say a lot of them didn't make stuff up. Like, okay. the, guy, <laughs> the guy who said that Jesus' feet didn't touch the ground. Fair enough. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and say he made some stuff up. Well, okay, but I mean, like, each of the various positions, they also had Bible verses on their side. And they would say, well, the reason that I don't think you can say Jesus God is... Jesus uh, took a nap, or he said this thing, and this this is it doesn't seem like it's quite factually correct, or or Jesus says he doesn't know something, and God must know everything, and so there were people who had verses on their side. So again, like 
we are so tempted, especially in this era of being divided over everything, it is super easy, especially when religion comes into the conversation, to say, well, my side is the Bible side, and the other people are terrible heretics. Who don't. Well, honestly, in any kind of conversation, these are all people who are doing their absolute best to try and wrestle with what they are convinced the, the scripture says. And um, so it's not like there was team Bible verse and the other was completely made up by the whole cloth. They might have had a little whole cloth, but they, you know, they, had, they had verses on each other's sides. And that, so that it wasn't just a let's weigh the stacks of Bible verses and whosoever's way more wins. But you had basically two parties going into this big group fight that we now call the Council of Nicaea. Uh, one of them is now regarded as, like you say, sort of orthodoxy. It was represented maybe most clearly by a guy named Athanasius, um, and the other side was represented by a guy named Arius. And interestingly enough, they weren't like at total opposite ends of I hate Jesus, I love Jesus. Um, Arius, his position was Jesus is very, 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 very much like God. In fact, he's of a very similar substance to God. The fancy Greek word of that is homoiousios, which means of a similar substance, of a similar being. And it's sort of like Arius' famous quote, if they had mottos back then, was there was a time when he was not. In other words, there was a time when there was just God the Father and there was no Jesus the Son or whatever. The second, what we might call the second person of the Trinity, is not just second in Counting, but also second chronologically. There was a time when there was no second person of the Trinity. There was just God who then made stuff. Um, and St. Nicholas punched that guy. (laughs) It it, it took people like St. Nicholas, the actual St. Nicholas, uh, to punch him in the face. um, And other folks like Athanasius. um, And the position that folks like Athanasius ended up arguing was... And you have, to, you have to, again, give credit to the heretics that this sounds like trying to have your cake and eat it too. And honestly, I think good Christian theology is going to sound like paradox more often than not. But Athanasius' position is something like he's fully human. Whatever it means to be human, Jesus is that. And also, Christ the Son is co-eternal. Whatever the same stuff God is made of, Christ the Son is made of that same stuff. And there was no time that he was not so that even from creation itself, even from before the beginning of the universe, there's always been this triune interweaving of relationship in God's being, and it gets expressed in history in the life of Jesus. But even before Nazareth and the Bethlehem star and Mary and Joseph, even before all of that, there's this relationship within God's own life that is sometimes framed as Father, Son, and Spirit. Yeah, so what came out of this council was the Athanasian Creed which is not in at least the current Lutheran hymnal that the ELCA uses. It's in our old green book, but it's not in our new Cranberry book. Um, I used to have my confirmation students read this. Um, oh, just, punishment? <laughs> no, 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 no. Like, when we talked about the creeds, I would have them read it out loud so that they would at least have heard it once. And it is long. Yeah. It takes about seven minutes to read out loud. Um, but yeah, that's also probably why it's not in our hymnal, because we'd probably use it once on Trinity Sunday, and, and that's it, because um, we're more likely to use the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. And the, the statement that came out of the Council of Nicaea is the Nicene Creed, and somewhere later on, this, this thing got written in Athanasius' name, because yeah, the, the thing that is called the Athanasian Creed sounds a lot more like the way Athanasius wrote, even though... Contextually, it's doubtful. It's probably about a thousand years later. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. The Athanasian Creed doesn't come from Athanasius. At least, Athanasius didn't write it with his own hand. But it sounds the way Athanasius talked. Learn something new every day. 
But the Nicene Creed, at least in some form, came out of the Council of Nicaea, although it's a little bit stubby toward the end. There's this very, very big middle block that says, that's all about Jesus, and the original Nicene Creed ends with, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. They had to have a later council in Constantinople to flesh out, well, what do you think we believe about the Holy Spirit? And they tacked that on so that now it is called the Nicene Creed in many churches, and including among Lutherans, uh, in our Lutheran hymnal, has a much uh, more fleshed out description of who this Holy Spirit is. Um, I guess because it felt like they were giving the Holy Spirit short shrift, honestly. I mean, like, you spend all this time about how does, uh, how does God the Father and God the Son relate, and then, like, oh, yeah, and the Holy Spirit, too. That kind of felt like, ah. And, I mean, e- even the Nicene Creed, there is this one line in that third stanza that is still pretty hotly debated, especially between, like, Western Christianity and Eastern right. Christianity. Which is the line, or, you know, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Whereas, like, the Eastern, Eastern Orthodoxy does not have and the Son. Right. Yeah. So, this is one of the interesting things that I think is an accident of history. In the early centuries, where the decisions got made as a council of representatives from the whole church everywhere... It was, all right, whatever came out of this, we were all going to agree, this is what we all say. All right, this is our new policy. And at some point, after later centuries, there comes to be a split between West and East that now we now sort of consider the Western Roman Catholic and then its its heirs, and then the East, the Orthodox traditions. Um, And once that split happened, it became a lot easier to allow there to be multiplicity of beliefs, and it was just sort of like, well, the Orthodox believe this, and we believe this thing over here, and that we didn't have to have a council make everybody all agree. So it's interesting. Like We've now ended up with this very, very fractured form of Christianity, and now we ended up fighting over things, not just about the nature of Jesus, but we fight over all kinds of stuff. You know, When will Jesus return? Uh, how many sacraments are there? What is a sacrament anyway? Uh, am I allowed to drink alcohol? What color should the church carpet be? We fight over these kinds of things, and I guess if there's a trade-off, there's a certain amount of like disunity that we just have learned to live with, but we also don't punch each other over very, very small differences. On the other hand, back in the ancient church, in the Council of Nicaea, they thought, we've got to get absolutely on the same page and be absolutely clear on this. And I guess, again, to their credit, the early church seemed to think that being clear about who Jesus is is one, it's a hill that's worth dying on. We've got, Athanasius regularly in his writings will say things like, whatever God hasn't taken on in Jesus can't be redeemed. So unless Jesus goes all the way into the pool and becomes completely human, like all the way down to, yep, hungry, yep, diapers as a baby, yep, cried, yep, wept. Like unless God has fully taken that on, that part of humanity, whatever isn't touched, doesn't, isn't, isn't redeemable. Right? So God enters in fully into our, our humanity. And also just has this sense of that Jesus has to be somehow fully God because only someone who's fully God can redeem us. That's sort of the logic that Athanasius uses. Um, and if instead God has to appoint somebody else, if God says, well, I'm, not, I'm too scared to enter human life, I'll just send my vice president of human affairs, that's kind of like God turns out to be kind of a chicken. Like, well, I don't want to get, get involved in the messiness of humanity, I'll send somebody else. And Athanasius' perspective is kind of, no, God's willing to take that leap in God's own being. Um, but they thought that was an issue so important it was worth getting down to the, the, the precise wording. So instead of Arius's position, which was, God and Jesus are of a similar substance, homoousios in the Greek. Uh, no, they are of the same substance, homoousios. And even though there's only one letter difference in those two in the Greek, the church fought real hard on that, on which was the right thing that we were going to say and teach and believe. Help me out here. 
I'm not trying to be heretical. I'm just asking questions because this is always fascinating to me about church history. I know Nicholas was a bishop. Mm -hmm. Yes. Was he a bishop before? Nice. Uh, yeah. The only people who got invited to the council were bishops. Okay, so they were all <laughs> bishops. Even Arius was a bishop. Uh, yeah, in fact, this is one of the okay. other difficult things is that you had whole regions of the church leaning and believing whatever their you know, bishop, bishop taught. Okay. And that meant large, again, like going in, like, like you don't know the winner of an election until it's, it's happened. You had multiple vying parties going in with leaders. So it wasn't that one was the respectable and with lots of bishops and the other, you know, people who were making things up. But, like, you had bishops on one side and bishops on the other. You had Bible verses on one side and Bible yeah. verses on the other. Because we all, I mean, We've talked about Nicholas before in this podcast, and we've talked about how he is the bishop of Marnie. I know. So, like, that's not one of those things I, I've known for a long time that St. Nicholas was a bishop. I didn't realize Athanasius and Arius also held that title as well. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that goes back to history is written by the winners, yeah. right? We don't want to think of the heretics as and being authoritative church leaders. And, you know, yeah, they. But Athanasius was the same, and I didn't know, he was, I didn't realize that he was a bishop. Yeah, that's, yeah, I think the other thing too is that the way we use that word has morphed over the centuries as well. Yeah. That yeah. you know, in 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 a sense, there was a time when the the word we use as bishop meant something more like the head teaching pastor in a community, mm -hmm. um, and that you might have a multiple people who did things around the church. But my goodness, when we when of course when this whole enterprise started, it was people meet, meeting in houses with whatever apostles writing you could get your hands on. And as this became a more involved organization, yeah, you get people who were set apart to be the primary teachers and leaders. But again, in those early centuries, that's not political power. That doesn't necessarily translate yeah. to I control fiefdoms and lands and feel like later on in the you know, what we call the medieval era, you have to be a bishop. Well that's a pretty a sweet deal because you got lands and you know, tax money that came your way, and you could build, you know, palaces or whatever. It was a pretty sweet life. You can go um, on chessboard. Yeah, all, all sorts of perks for being a bishop. But, like, this is still a time where basically you, your primary job was related to the church, but, like, this wasn't necessarily glamorous. Yeah. And there was still the periodic fear that you could be fed to a lion if mm -hmm. uh, an emperor who didn't like you came into, into power. So how did the, the council end up, was it a vote? Like... Did Arius just get out? Like, this is a part of, yeah, I remember learning this in seminary, but this is part of the church history that I'm a little fuzzy. Yeah, I, 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 I'm a little fuzzy as well, but I do think that it's sort of like after everybody got to make their case, there was sort of a sense of the most persuasive case at the end of the day, maybe they did a head count to decide, but it was sort of, in the end, whatever folks might have been on the fence, there, were, there was a sizable number who were persuaded by the way Athanasius taught and spoke, and that that came to be what was the majority position. Whether they had a head count vote or a ballot vote, that... So it wasn't the actual winner of the physical fight. That right. No, oh yeah, no. <laughs> Although, I'm sure that might have persuaded at least one or two people <laughs> of like, oh man, if we don't agree this way, then uh, Bishop Nicholas is going to punch me, so... <laughs> sure, sure, Jesus is God. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it, it, it's interesting too because I think we're used to picturing in a lot of ways sort of a top-down kind of hierarchy mm -hmm. of church, maybe because later on in the Latin church, like in Roman Catholicism, it is a sort of simple streamline. There's a well, Yeah, that, and it sort of trickles down. Mm -hmm. And in the early centuries when they were having these kind of councils, it was a lot more regional leaders coming together, all right, what do we all got to agree on? And <clears throat> they also got together and <clears throat> had to talk about other things. Like they, at the Council of Nicaea, they talked about, should we all celebrate Easter at the same time? Yeah, when, how do we calculate that? And like, so there's other stuff that happened at that gathering. You also get around that time 
an, an emerging list of what they what we would call the New Testament canon. So they like they got together and dealt with a bunch of stuff, but this was sort of one of the definitive issues when they were all in the room together. Um, and for a while, Christianity sort of emerged with when there's an, a, a question that's important enough, we'll just get our leaders together and we'll decide this way, not with a top-down, one person decrees it. And this, to me, is another interesting, not just accident of history, but I think this is part of a cool thing about the way what we call orthodoxy emerged. If you were the emperor at the time, it, in some ways, it would have been more convenient to have a losing position come out. That Arius' position of... Jesus is like a sub-vice president of God, that would have fit his picture a whole lot better. There's one God, and then one Christ under him, and then the emperor under him, and it's sort of a streamlined top-down, this is how it is. And the church didn't pick that. They didn't pick this sort of imperial model where there's one person on top decreeing things and delegating it to others, but this communal equality within God, um, without, without it intending to be uh, egalitarian, sort of has that sort of, uh, it had that kind of effect. Um, and to me that seems interesting that, that the, it wasn't just a cynical power grab from the emperor saying I want you to find a way to make the religion work that it backs me being in charge they, if they wanted that they would have picked Arius yeah how much was the emperor involved in in well the way the story goes he's the one who sort of I mean, pulled them together, together. Yeah. but like you know was he actually <clears throat> involved in the debating or was it just something that he I, called together I don't think he was involved in the debating I think he mostly just wanted Christianity to be unified yeah. Yeah. because with unity there's a little bit more stability than yeah. like if they're splintering off because people disagree with one another right. so he just wanted them all to get on the same page like I don't think he cared what page yeah just it needed to be the same it, page. It, in, in a lot of ways it was the political expediency of we need to have order, so you guys need to work your stuff out and come up with an answer. And yeah, I, I don't know if it's fair to say that Constantine had deep theological interest in one side or the other so much as he wanted them to come up with an answer so they could resolve it. Yeah, yeah. And to me, this, that part of the messiness is important to name too. That like, I would like to imagine some part of me wishes that all the church folks said, um, let, let's all just uh, decide to agree. We're all pretty sure we know what the Bible's teaching us. Let's all just agree, but it was a lot messier. Was, and, and it required the emperor to step in and say, you guys got to stop fighting with each other, come up with an answer here. Like locking kids in a room and saying, you have to make up, or else I'm not letting you out. And so who's our emperor to make us agree on everything else? Yeah, well, yeah, right. And, and there, there are trade-offs. Because yeah, like, it gets awfully tempting for the emperor to take the next step of, you all have to agree, and I will tell you what you all have to mm -hmm. agree to. Um, which is dangerous in all sorts of other ways, too. Um, but yeah, it, I think it's worth owning that what we have printed in our hymnals or creed books, and it looks like this is the way it's always been, not exactly. You could say that the roots of what we believe have, are there in the, old, yeah. in, the, in the scriptures. And like, like we said last time, the seeds of what we call this idea of the Trinity are there in places like John's Gospel, with the, with the word was God and the word was with God, um, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But that's poetry, and when you try to pin things down a little bit more clearly, you're forced to write things, and when you clarify, you're going to get people who disagree, and that, that's sort of where we ended up. Can I ask, honestly, are there ways that this makes a difference the way you see your faith? Not just the, the, the process, but like, does it make a difference in your life, preaching, and ministry to say that Jesus is all the way fully God and fully human in a way that you wouldn't have that power if we just had... Jesus is God's vice president of human affairs or kind of somewhat like a human or like Hercules, half one, half the other. I'm, I'm sure that it 
does, but since I can't imagine Jesus any other way, mm, right? Yeah. Because, like, the Council of Nicaea was so long ago that for the vast majority of the history of Christianity, we have viewed Jesus as fully human and fully divine. And so, for me in my ministry, I can't imagine Jesus just being a rabbi or a prophet or, you know, whatever, because for my entire life and for the life of my family and my country and my faith, Jesus is fully human and fully divine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I so I imagine it does, but I can't really imagine life any other way. Yeah, I, I'm the same way, like... It would be foolishness, as Paul says, to, mm-hmm. to follow Jesus if he were just a rabbi 2,000 years later. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. But I can't imagine a theology any different mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. than 100 plus 100 equals 100. You know, like, right, right, right. Um, I, I, that's just... I, I'm trying to... It, it blows my mind to think of something different. Mm-hmm. And how that would affect what I'd be doing, what I do. Right. You know, like this is the calling on my life. I can't imagine doing anything else, and that's because of our theology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that theology, like, if something would to come out and just whack me over the head and say, "Hey, you've had this wrong for two thousand years," I'd be like, um, "Who am I?" Mm-hmm. 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 The part of the reason I ask him because I, I I get that that like I don't know how to imagine how things would be different and of course the conditions I've inherited shape the way I think. There's an old line of Douglas Adams who says the the water in the puddle assumes that the pothole was shaped specifically for it. Like you know, if, you, if you're the water, you're like, oh, this pothole is specifically designed just for me. It was created for me. And like, no, the water takes the shape of whatever container it was put in. Um, that like. There's a piece of me that it, I, I have a hard time imagining. Yeah, what would it look like in, a, in an alternate history where Arius had won? On the other hand, I guess I could at least imagine if you were trying to do pastoral care and somebody was staring down to death, and the most I could say was somebody very, very important to God came and took on death for you, rather than that God is yeah. at, like there's a there's a no holds there's like a there are no there no matter what no matter what may come that there is no length God won't go to it hasn't gone to already um, and that that means that there's nothing too messy or difficult or whatever that, that at some point there, there's no ew factor for God that God doesn't go oh I don't want to be a human like nope all the way into the into the the full messiness and beauty and terribleness of what it is to be human um, and, and in some ways to me. That makes a, a, a beeline to that line we talked about before Mr. Rogers, that anything that is human is mentionable and anything that's mentionable is manageable. And that anything that is human is also something that God has taken on. And um, that means that there's no point at which we can say, sorry, God can't help you, this isn't really God's domain. And to me, that does seem like an important difference, at least with like, you know, the, the pagan religions of the Greek and Roman eras, where you know, you've got Zeus operates in this area, and Poseidon operates in the sea, and Hades is in the underworld, and it's sort of, if you're from the wrong turf, they can't help you. Um, and that at stake in the Christian faith that came out of Nicaea was that without saying Jesus is all the way fully God and fully divine, you end up with limits or asterisks where God won't go or can't go or is afraid to go. Um, and I don't, that, that sort of a, a being might be 
worthy of my awe, but not my love, I guess. You know, like yeah. a, a being who's very, very powerful, but still holds back. Says, I'm not going to do that. For that feels very mm-hmm. like that meatloaf song, I'd do anything for love, but I won't do that. Like, that to me is Arius' as God. It's like, well, I come pretty close. I'll, I'll send Jesus for you, but I'm not willing to go myself. Um, and that seems like that's a God with strings. Yeah. I spent Advent preaching on uh, hope, peace, love, and joy. You know, the four themes of our candles of the Advent wreath. And if I didn't have Jesus as fully God, I wouldn't have those things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I wouldn't, especially in the midst of a pandemic, like, mm-hmm. I couldn't preach hope mm-hmm. that we're going to be back together again in worship you know, in our building at some point, and mm-hmm. we're going to be able to worship without masks and without social distancing, like, mm-hmm. I know I can hope for those things because Jesus is fully God and fully human, but if, if he's not, then what control does he have over mm-hmm. what's going on in the world around mm-hmm. us? Mm-hmm. I appreciate you being able to share this, and I, I guess I hope for, not only for our sake, but for folks who are listening, that part of how the people of God, the followers of Jesus, have made decisions hasn't just boiled down to who's got a bigger stack of Bible verses, um, or even which seems perfectly reasonable and which one, like, because honestly, both Athanasius and Arius require you to believe some paradox, require some, like, mm-hmm. this is the strains my ability to, to understand. Um, but that, that's important, that maybe part of how you know you've got something close to the real God is if it, if, is if it boggles your mind. That, like, if, if it's explainable, mm-hmm. it's no longer mystery, and if it's not mystery, you've, you've turned it into an idol. And maybe that's an important thing for us to hold on to, too. So, more adventures in the new year, um, and welcome here to 2021. Hopefully things are in, are, are in good directions for all of us as we begin. Uh, but thanks for joining us here on this episode of Crazy Faith Talk. See you all. Bye. Bye.